0: You're listening to Consolidate That. Ukraine is my motherland. It is now under a savage attack by Russia. Ukraine is shielding Europe and the rest of the civilized world from Putin's barbaric aggression. Ukrainians are brave and effectively fighting back. Let's help. Make a donation to armed forces of Ukraine. Link is in the show notes. Hashtag stand with Ukraine
1: welcome back to consolidate that ivan it's good to see you again looks like you've been maybe fishing a bit you got a nice uh little bit of sun so i'm jealous it's too hot when i go outside here i just cook from the inside out i think so it's nice uh, nice see someone can enjoy the weather good to see you ryan
0: uh excited about this new episode yes i have been uh fishing and then just boating two days in a row so i do oh, look yeah.
1: a little bit like it uh, Uh, Trump.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The uh, the
1: perks of living up north, there you go. Yeah,
0: well, I'm excited today about our guest. This is an exciting um, uh, episode for me. Today we have Bill Snow. Bill is an experienced M&A professional with over 30 years of professional experience, including almost two decades as an investment banker. He has written articles uh, for online sources as well as uh, books about mergers and acquisitions. One of them, Mergers and Acquisitions for Dummies, which I started to read because I feel like one. Second edition, uh, May 31st, 2023, Early Stage Capital Venture Capital 101 and Personal Marketing. He has presented at universities including Northwest University, DePaul University, IIT Kent, and Harvard Business School, as well as the Thomson Reuters Midwestern MA Private Equity Forum. Chase Bank, Huntington Bank, Ice Miller, the Illinois CPA Society, and University Club of Chicago. Bill is a Vistage speaker and has presented to groups in Chicago, New Orleans, Louisville, and Cincinnati. He has lectured internationally in Malaysia and the United Arab Emirates. He has an MBA and a Bachelor of Science in Finance, both from DePaul University. Wow, Bill, thank you for joining us for this episode. Welcome to the show.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: So uh, we're going to take it from the angle of dummies that are building a company that is based on M and A strategy as the as part of it. Uh, so there's two sides to it. One is the M and A as the main sort of value creation for the investors, and then the second part of it is the operational excellence and efficiency, which is improving the targets that we acquire. Essentially, it's a roll-up in the veterinary domain. I wanted to ask you. So I, you know, I started to bite into your book, and uh, I interesting phrase that I heard and it kind of caught my attention was that MA is one of the few industries where the seller has easier time to sell than the buyer to buy. Can you open up a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. In mergers and acquisitions, doing deals, buying companies is quote unquote easier in relative terms. I don't wanna say it's easy. It's not as easy as falling off a log, but making acquisitions, buying companies is far more difficult than acquiring companies for a simple reason. In most cases, the demand from buyers far outseeds, far outstrips the supply of sellers. And somebody is happy with the business. They make good money. They jump out of bed in the morning. They can't wait to get to work. They love what they do. You can't offer that person enough money to buy their company because the mistake that I think a lot of buyers make is they view buying a company as akin to going to the grocery store. I'll walk down this aisle. Let's see, I need a can of soup. This aisle needs some bread, and this aisle. Oh, let's get a company. Which one should I pick? Roles are reversed when you're selling a business, especially if it's a good business. Doesn't have to be some incredible thing, but just a good, decent, well-run business that's profitable and growing. That buyer quite often will be the one that picks the sellers. I mean, th- th- I'm sorry, the seller. The seller is quite often the one who picks the buyers because you're going to get multiple offers, you can sell the company only one time. And that's a big reason why making acquisitions is difficult. acquisition work is divided into three components, search negotiate and finance. That's oversimplification, but those are the main roles. And so the finance is usually easiest. There's plenty of money out there. You can get money. Negotiating, that's the fun part if you know what you're doing. It's the search aspect, simply finding something to buy. That is what is extremely difficult and I think gets short shrift from acquirers, whether it's a smaller roll-up of doctors or or vet facilities to big companies, multi-billion dollar private equity firms. It's the search aspect that by far is most difficult
0: so do you think that uh, now that we're doing this i think we have as a buyer and as a consolidator we have a product that is appealing to the doctors that are selling because we offer a lot of the stuff to the employees in that particular clinic post acquisition And, and there's an interesting thing that happened in our market our market was really the the seller's market so we had tons of the clinics that wanted to sell and we have about 57 competitors to us they were buying in the last two years. But since the market kind of collapsed, if we can call it collapse, but when the interest rates went up and everything else, uh, it you know, there was a big hit on our competitors. So actually out of 57 right now, from what we know, there's only five to seven that are actually actively buying. So it switched from the seller to buyer and the multiples dropped significantly. So what do you think in that particular environment when it flipped from in the multiples in the 18, 20 multiples of EBITDA, and then right now it kind of dropped back to 10 and sort of low teens. So is there any behavior as a buyer that uh, we should be looking for in the sellers? Because right now it's sort of like a lot of them feel like they missed the boat. And what would be your prediction in the market like that? Would that really pause this the sellers to sell or would they be more panicking and selling more? We're trying to just to kind of look at the crystal ball and maybe yours is more clear than ours.
2: Yeah, I I learned a long time ago, I don't prognosticate on what's going to happen because something else always happens, right? If you were sitting in one of these luncheons in, say, 1997, and you're listening to one of these brilliant people, and you know they're brilliant because they're going to tell you that they're brilliant, about they know what's going to happen in the economy. Nobody was forecasting the the dot-com crash in the spring of 2000 and the debacle with uh, housing and collateralized, collateralized. debt obligations in in you know oh seven, oh eight. Nobody forecasts this. In, in in December of nineteen, were you planning on loading up on toilet paper and canned goods and hiding in your basement for six months because you were terrified of breathing. Nobody was forecasting this. So something else is always going to happen. MA is very much a microeconomic activity. The underlying asset, the business, the practice, whatever it is, that is what's going to drive the value. A lot of other factors along with that. Larger things, such as changing interest rate environment, yeah, that's going to do what? That's going to make the cost of capital more expensive, that might knock out uh, some other buyers, that's going to put downward pressure on the valuations. The flip side though, is that the sellers can now get a decent return, a good return on some sort of fixed income product. That has been, I think, something that's been overlooked and people really haven't talked about a lot over the last You know, decade and a half roughly, when we've had this zero interest rate policy. So, what has that done? That has made borrowing money very cheap, very easy to do. Lots of money out there. What does that tend to do? That puts upward pressure on the valuation. You've talked about having dozens of competitors, now just a handful. Okay, you still have handfuls, right? You're talking to a seller. That seller can only sell that clinic one time. They can't replicate it and sell it three, four times. So what has happened with the, the low interest rates is, okay, a lot of money, Uh, You can get more money for your business if you sell it, but what do you do? Uh, Do you want to stick it in the stock market and take that risk? No, you know what? I need income. I want to have reasonable protection on the principal. I want to get a decent return. And if I buy some sort of fixed income product, it's paying what? Half a percent is basically nothing. You know what? I'll keep my capital in the business, which put further upward pressure on valuations. And so that might be something you can talk to business owners that, you know what? If you want to sell the business, depending on what you're looking to do, retire now or in a few years, you can get a reasonable return on the capital that you get when you sell your business. A few years ago, yeah, you might have gotten more money, a higher multiple, but fixed income products were a lot lower, is basically zero. So maybe that helps move the needle, because I've I've been forecasting that for a while, that all these people who don't wanna sell because of the replacement income issue, I cannot get a decent return uh, elsewhere, I'll keep my money where it is, that they would start crying in their soup that they didn't sell at the maximum Uh, multiple, but guess what? They can get more of a return, a decent return on their money today. Maybe that's a good talking point for you guys.
0: So that's an excellent point. We have a seller that we've been talking to and they, you know, they, they were riding this wave and then they, the biggest decision-making point for that seller was how do I replace the income that I collect right now? And then uh, and then it might be interesting to explore what you're saying now. So you're saying that if they're selling at this lower point market but then reinvesting that capital will provide a better return on investment long term.
2: Yeah, Well, it's- not long term. Certainly now in a higher interest rate environment. So if you're buying corporate bonds or government bonds, something that's A rated, something that you don't want to put a lot of risk. Everybody thinks all you do in investments is you put in the stock market and you can do that. But you get to a point in life where you think, you know what, I've got something... I don't want to lose. I, I don't want to put my principal at risk. I will give up sky's the limit return because I'm not 30 anymore. I'll give up sky's the limit return for security of my principal and a decent return on top of that. So today you can get a better return on those products than you did just a few years ago, certainly 5, 10, 15 years ago when when interest rates were basically zero.
1: And that makes a lot of sense, especially for the sellers that are looking at you know being on the brink or the edge of retirement as well, right? So that's something that you're going to need to be living off of that income or that sale price in the future. Very interesting. I always think, you know, whenever you look at whether we're going into a recession or not, I know some of the GDP figures are saying perhaps not, some are saying yes, but all of those things, right? No crystal ball. But the people that go into the recession with the most cash usually come out with the largest massive pile of additional cash at the end of a recession. You see it you know, all of the big names that you see from the Vanderbilts all the way through every other business and everything like that seem to be the ones that that do really well. And perhaps that's something that's interesting to think about as sellers look into retirement.
2: Well, that's, That's a great point. Obviously, retirement is often the driver between somebody looking to sell their business or their their medical practice, their vet practice. And so talking to them about that, what do you want to accomplish? What are you looking to do? Do you want to retire? Do you have enough now to retire and live the lifestyle that you want? And so instead of getting into this, trying to chase some sort of huge number look for a seller, the more the more the merrier, right? The bigger the number, the better, right? Who wouldn't take more money? But instead of talking about that, where maybe you're talking about a valuation that nobody can support anymore, no one's gonna pay, you talk about, you pivot, uh, are you working with somebody? Are you doing any planning, financial planning? Do you have any trust set up? Are you going to leave money to any heirs, your 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 children or other family members or or other people? Have you done that? So instead of focusing on trying to get just the, the biggest number possible, because most business owners want a number, it's called infinity. And I've, I've written a lot of offers to buy companies. I've not yet, I'm a smart guy. I've not yet figured out how to offer somebody infinity. But instead of trying to figure out that number, because whatever you put on that piece of paper, or that email is going to be a disappointment to the seller because they go, to, they go to work every day and they think, you know, sky's the limit. It's a very exciting thing to be an entrepreneur. I'm, I'm going to create as much value. I Sky's the limit now. Now, all of a sudden, you're selling the business and you get a very specific number or a small range of numbers. And that's almost anticlimactic. So if you're talking about what do they need to fund a gap in their planning so they can live their retirement, if they're retiring, exactly as they want to live, that's where you want to be. Is this enough to to get it done? And then if they're working with somebody, you know, maybe they're making, uh, okay, I wanted three houses. Well, now this offer I can only afford two. You know, shoot, I can't buy the helicopter. They start making decisions like that. Okay, I can still live the way I want, and you know, maybe the alma mater doesn't get a hundred grand. I'll leave ten thousand or whatever. They can make those decisions with actual advice and actionable bits of information as opposed to kind of sticking their finger up in the air and and guessing and where more is better, of course, but I'd rather have a specific plan that they're working on. I think that increases the odds of getting a successful deal done.
0: I want to go back to what uh, your comment on the most difficult part of the buying is sourcing the deals. Because as I mentioned, we we seem to have a strategy that attracts the sellers and we have a pretty significant pipeline, but then the complexity of actually finishing the deal. And I know for the guy like you who done tons of them and can even write a book for dummies. Do you really think that the process of buying and the diligence and looking for things in the, uh, you know, the skeletons in, in the closets and things like that is easier then sourcing the deals.
2: Well, you, you might have an exception here if the sellers of these practices are reaching out to the buyers in the industry. Now, I know Large private equity firms have been dipping their toes into vet practices and rolling them up Why because they 're having trouble finding deals elsewhere so they 're looking at dentist' office and doctors and of course, vets are part of that as well so even if you go from having a few dozen to four or five competitors you 're still in a competitive process, and maybe the valuations have gone down because there 's less upward pressure, but nonetheless, only one group is going to be selected the buyer so even if you 're in a a bake off. With three other or two other potential buyers, there's three of you, only one of you will win that mandate. And what I tell what I tell business owners is finding a buyer is easy getting a deal done that makes sense for the seller. That's what's really difficult. And I think the same thing applies to you. If you have business owners who are contacting you, well, why are they contacting you? Do they have really good businesses that are profitable and growing, or do they have some sort of other issue or some sort of extenuating circumstance that's reaching Uh, causing them to reach out. Now I got to sell this thing for anything. I just got to find the next sucker to put up some money. I don't know if that's the case. I don't want to say that. But if they're reaching out to you, why are they reaching out to you? Maybe uh, what we always talk about in in M&A is having a thesis. So maybe you've got a really good thesis. So maybe you're talking about we can do a lot of the things that you don't like to do. Now you can focus on creating some liquidity, maybe working for a few more years and retiring and focus on what you really enjoy about the business, which maybe is taking care of the animals. Maybe all that back office stuff and staffing and hiring and payroll and insurance. All that stuff is not as exciting. So maybe I don't know what your, your thesis is, but maybe that's your thesis or part of your thesis that you guys can come in there, offer a lot of that. So this is something you're offering the seller. We'll put together a very fair package and here's all the other things that come along with, with doing a deal with us. We, we will give you some money, help you retire. You can focus on what you enjoy doing and all that stuff you hate, we take care of.
0: That's interesting. It's an interesting market right now and uh, in the veterinary domain what, where veterinarians, let's say 10, 15 years ago, Nobody ever thought that the the end of your sort of career is selling or the perpetual, actually, selling the clinic, buying the clinic, selling the clinic, and then selling it to a consultator. It used to be, I'm a vet, graduating, joining someone as an associate, maybe buying a part in the vet clinic. That person retires. I take over, and my retirement is sort of passing it through to the next veterinarian. So now there's this market that's been created in the last 10, 15 years, where the exit strategy that veterinarians think about their end of career is actually selling a particular business to a consolidator. So it's interesting how the, the market educated veterinarians. And I think those pioneers that were starting acquisitions in the, in our domain, they were fighting against, why would I sell it to corporate? I don't understand. I just, that's not how we used to do it. So that part is easier for us, but I think it's still working with someone. And again, I I like it in your book that, that you're talking about the fact that you're buying it from someone who has no idea how to sell business they in our case they have idea how to you know remove the spleen or you, the uterus from a patent but but they don't know how to uh prepare the business so so what is your advice from the from for dummies angle uh, to the seller how to better prepare from knowing how to vaccinate and spay the dog to actually sell your business
2: yeah uh great question you've got to have the tools and the materials needed to get anything done. And so the materials are provided by the seller. So when we work with business owners, what I tell them is maybe it's a bit hokey, but I always say, you need three things to do this. We're gonna build a house for you basically, okay? I've got the blueprint, I've got the labor. The only thing I need you to do is provide all the materials needed to finish the house. And if you give us most of the materials, but we don't have the windows and the doors and the bathroom fixtures, Okay, we're pretty close, but that's not a finished house. You're missing something. And the same thing applies when you're selling a business. So have all the components that you need. Uh, Financial documents. I don't know how much accountant prepared statements get involved in your world. I don't know if it's probably not worth a review, but at least some sort of compilation or a compilation plus. You can talk to them where you have, especially if it's a bigger practice, maybe it makes sense to have uh, a third-party accounting firm, you don't need an audit at that size, but but maybe a review or maybe there's something else that the accountants can do to give you the buyer or any buyer a greater foothold and understanding that these numbers are accurate and legitimate. The the transition away from the owners, the owner integral to the business. So if if the owner is the face of the business and doing all the marketing and, and everybody goes to the practice because of Dr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so leaves, what's that business worth? And so what I always tell business owners is make yourself expendable. If you're not needed, if you don't have to show up tomorrow, the business is going to be fine and continue to grow. That's going to be worth a lot more to somebody else. So those are a couple of things, get the materials and make sure that you are replaceable in a business.
0: That's very interesting. W- one of the, uh, one of the things that we're, it's sort of full-time discussion, I would say about the integration process and, um, some people in our industry some companies do integration so and they don't insist and they wait for the seller to make an announcement on the day of signing the asset purchase agreement some of them are insisting on a couple months before that but that carries its own risk because if they inform the team and start sort of pre-integration process before everything is signed and on the dotted line then you're risking to announcing to your team something about that, uh, that's not going to happen. We're of the vision that, uh, we really like engage early. And that shows how much the seller actually is connected to the leadership team because the leadership team is, is who we're going to be working with post acquisition. The seller might stay, might go, but we still need to manage the team. What would be your recommendation and what you've seen as best practices?
2: Well, I'm an investment banker, so I sell businesses. So I have no idea. Once the deal's done, I get a fee. They slam the door in my face and I'm like that scene in, uh, Any movie where where someone's looking outside, that the restaurant, everybody's warm inside, they're having a drink and a nice dinner, and I'm staring outside. So I'm just the, just the, just the lowly little harmless little investment banker. I I have done acquisition work, so that's a bit of a joke, but my job, it really is a a sudden stop where I went from being the most important to being persona non grata. As far as the integration, that's really up to each acquirer. Communication is obviously huge, being forthright and honest, making sure that little problems are fixed and they don't become big problems. Uh, Finding the right time to communicate to staff, and that might vary. I, I do recommend sellers hold off on telling people unless they need to know, they might have a a controller or office manager, someone who's gonna be helping uh, pull documents and financials. But if at all possible, I, I think holding off until the deal is done before you tell everybody, hey, I've sold the practice because, if they tell everybody and then something happens, and as we've said before, something some something different always happens in life, right? If the deal doesn't close and it has nothing to do with the seller, people might start saying, well, is the business impacted? Do I need to dust off my resume and look for another job? So uh, communication, figuring out the right way to, to tell everybody. You don't want to lie. So the business owners, are you selling the business? But they never lie. No, we're not selling the business. And then a week later, you announce I sold the business. You say, look, everything has a price right somebody makes me some incredible offer of course i'll have to listen everything everything in the world is for sale if you offer enough money
0: good advice one of the things that you also talk in the book is about those uh, meetings that uh, definitely the seller is not used to, and we're seeing this a lot, is the meetings after the letter of intent is signed. When you're leading the due diligence process, you have to get the information out and you need to communicate with the seller, but you sometimes need to ask also difficult questions. Do you have any sort of silver bullet advice on how to conduct these meetings? What happens in these meetings and how do you ask difficult questions without Losing the seller through the process?
2: Sure, sure. I'll ask the question. So when we have meetings, if I'm representing the seller, so we will put materials together. We'll provide a financial update of the materials because from the time we put the book together and had all those conversations to now we're sitting down with the prospective buyers in these different meetings. A few months have gone by, so the buyers, are, of course, are going to want to get an update of the financials. Anything else that's material, hey, we want a big customer, you know this great thing you know the patent's been approved whatever whatever that that great news story is or something something negative you want to disclose that as well as you go through those meetings if you have a question ask the question okay if it's something that you need to know you're not going to know unless you ask the question so if you can give me some examples of of difficult questions maybe i can give you a more specific answer but if you do have questions the meeting is the time for, to ask that question what we tell sellers as well because a lot of times look no business is perfect right everybody makes bad decisions or a mistake that's just life that's called business right it's how you react to that and and fix those issues and problems. So a lot of times business owners don't want to talk about something. They're embarrassed. Oh boy, this was a big mistake. This was a boondoggle when we did that. You're better off getting it out in the open because when you go through due diligence, a good buyer is going to uncover all those problems. So instead of finding a problem that was hidden, if you can say, look, we, we made a decision to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It didn't work out. Here's what it cost us and here's how we fixed it that becomes a 2 minute conversation if even that at a business meeting as opposed to if you try and hide that someone's going to say what's going on while you're hiding this and now you've created a big problem where you didn't have a problem so uh, as with everything communication is key
0: yeah it's interesting and the challenging conversations come from the uh because we we're we're acquiring businesses that are run by a person and it's a small very small business it's sort of like a, almost like a family so obviously people run a lot of stuff through the company and they you know they have their Personal cars, and then they have, you know, a lot of things that they're sensible things to do, but then it becomes sort of like, you know. uh, being a vet, I would call it a colonoscopy. That <laughs> you're getting exposed to the to everything that you have done, which were you know they were are sound decisions if you're a business owner. But when you're selling it, it they also may affect your uh, final valuation because it's based on the EBITDA, and then the adbacks may change through the process. And I think that what we see is that the sellers they don't expect that the depth of the questions that they will get through the process, and then they sort of when these questions are asked, they feel like they have hidden something. Prior to that, and that 's where it becomes uh, so its it 's just for the i think for the buyer, there are very common things and just they go into adjustment it 's just a number question it 's not emotional, but for them it becomes more emotional than for us so that 's what I think we're seeing and just keeping that conversation in a manner where the person doesn 't feel threatened i think that 's sort of the, not the challenge, but then art I think of m a
2: yeah I completely agree again it's it 's the communication. I rip the Band-Aid off, you know, have that discussion. It's going to come up at some point. And as with anything else, when you negotiate, you're going to be negotiating. There's, there's going to be sensitive things, touchy things that come up. And, and how you handle that, your bedside manner, basically. And that's what they teach doctors. I'm, I'm sure they, they teach you you vets as well to, uh, uh, you know, when, when you're dealing with probably probably more the, the human owner of, of the pet. But there has to be a bedside manner. You have to have some some empathy and some understanding. And that's a big part of... Uh, running, running a process or selling, selling a business or, or buying a business. And in a sense, a lot of ways you be in, end up being a psychiatrist and you know, you're you a shoulder for someone to cry on and you can talk about things and, and help position it and help say, look, this is okay. Everybody, nobody has gone through their career without making a mistake. Let's disclose this. Let's talk about it and, and move on. Let's not make some little minor issue become a big problem.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, though, like the idea that you talk about it as they're bringing the building blocks, right? You you don't get to change what the drywall is made of. You don't get to change how the wood is, you know, just bring us the bring us the pieces and let us build it. So very interesting there. I, I think we may be coming up on time because this has been very interesting. And we obviously brought the dummy section and you brought the mergers and acquisition section. But segueing that into... We always ask our guests, what's a book that they'd recommend as an author? You probably have some books, but I I know you have a, a new one coming out and we'd love to just sort of plug that in and hear what the new book is about.
2: Well, the, the the book just came out, Mergers and Acquisitions for Dummies, the second yes. edition. So the, the first one came out uh, 12 years ago. I'm very fortunate that Wiley, the publisher, reached out to me again last year. So of course we came out with, with a new one. Yeah, Mergers and Acquisitions for Dummies. Make sure you get the purple cover. That's the new one that just came out in late May. And you can buy that anywhere. Fine books are sold. Amazon, Barnes and Nobles—they're still around. Books a million. Uh, I've even heard rumors that physical bookstores still exist. So anywhere you find a book or a bookseller, you should be able to buy the book. It is published by Wiley Publishing, They're a uh, big major publishing house.
0: Excellent. Well, Bill, thank you so much for your expertise and the time dedicated to our show today. Uh, it's been very enlightening, and uh, and uh, good luck with the with the book. Hopefully, our listeners will immediately get it on every bookstore available online or in in person
2: and then soon on audible that would be great okay thanks guys really appreciate it thanks bill
1: thank you so much for listening to consolidate that if you want to hear our new episodes please find us on any podcast platform also you can learn more about us on our website at galaxyvets.com